Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by neurotologist Dr. Brian Neff, and we'll be discussing otitis externa. Dr. Neff, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Today we'll talk about acute otitis externa, chronic otitis externa, as well as malignant otitis externa. And I did just want to highlight that there's a clinical practice guideline about AOE specifically. Uh, And Dr. Neff, to start, what kind of symptoms do patients present with when they have an otitis externa? Uh, Typically, um, it depends on the timing. Uh, So if it is acute otitis externa, which is two weeks or under, then it'll be primarily pain. Um, but they'll also complain of fullness and hearing loss. Chronic tends to be less painful. Um, they tend to complain more about uh, itching and fullness uh, with some drainage. So between the two, it kind of covers all of the symptoms I think you can see with otitis externa. And when you see folks in clinic who are complaining of these types of things, otalgia, otorrhea, oral fullness, what are you looking for on clinical exam? Can you walk us through how you evaluate these patients in clinic? Essentially, I think there's two important uh, components. One primarily is the uh, otoscopic or even better microscopic examination. And then I I like to do a, a cranial nerve examination. Um, and possibly even palpation of the parotid and upper neck for lymph nodes. Uh, But primarily it's a microscopic examination where you're trying to uh, look in the ear canal to see its status. Um, Again, acute otitis externa tends to have uh, a lot of swelling and discomfort uh, just with pulling on the pinna and trying to manipulate your speculum into their external canal. You'll see a lot of edema. Um, sometimes otorrhea and and pain primarily, whereas chronic otitis externa has uh, a variability. Uh, They don't have as much pain. Sometimes they do, but uh, you'll see various levels of skin thickening, I think, that's causing narrowing from none to quite a bit. And they have a lot more debris, I think, that that you can see that you want to clean so I think those are the, the main things. And are there any other types of symptoms, maybe more systemic symptoms or other constitutional symptoms that they might complain of? There's always the worry about otitis externa, or sorry, malignant otitis externa, or even sometimes a uh, malignancy of the skin, such as basal cell or squamous cell. So the malignant otitis externa patients tend to just look sicker. Um, So they can have fever, they can have uh, lymph nodes on examination, but uh, parotid swelling uh, and and redness around it, uh, the ear, um, I think are important to look at. But it's mostly a uh, localized uh, problem. And are there any risk factors that you're asking patients about that tune you into the fact that this is otitis externa? Uh, primarily, I think uh, acute otitis externa, you're looking at anything that causes immunosuppression. So chron- chronic um, tends to be, I'm asking more about skin infections. 
uh, or skin conditions. But acute otitis externa, you want to know about diabetes. But anybody that's neutropenic from anything you can imagine has uh, the potential to have a more severe otitis externa. So somebody that's been through bone marrow transplantation or something like that, you got to worry more about malignant otitis externa or I like to call it skull-based osteomyelitis. Um, chronic otitis externa, I think skin conditions that I kind of clicked through in my mind uh, would be uh, lichen planus, uh, psoriasis, uh, but really any type of dermatologic condition can, can be involved in the ear canal. I also kind of look at uh, systemic fungal infections under the nails, toenails, fingernails. Uh, they can get a dermatophyted reaction. Uh, it's almost an autoimmune reaction uh, of the ear canal uh, from systemic fungal exposure. And what's the breakdown you feel in terms of kids getting this versus adults getting this? And what are some predisposing factors that separate the two? Primarily, kids get acute otitis externa. Uh, so it's commonly called swimmer's ear, and it's from water exposure, typically in the summer months. But uh, you see some adults that get that, get this. Primarily, I think there's a variance in the diameter of ear canals and people with narrower ear canals or curved ear canals tend to uh, get acute otitis externa. Chronic otitis externa is primarily an adult phenomenon. Um, malignant otitis externa or skull-based osteomyelitis is definitely an adult disease. And it, I think it usually comes in in you know, patients that are 60 and older, uh, although it can be really any age in an immunocom immunocompromised patient. And how much do you dive into the history about trauma with things like Q-tips, bobby pins, that kind of thing? Does that make a difference? I think it does. Um, I have to remind myself to talk about that stuff because it's probably something that makes treatment, uh, sorry, makes diseases of the ear canal refractory to therapy. I think that that's the the key. So it's better up front just to tell them to avoid Q-tips and anything to, that's manipulating the ear canal because uh, it feels good to itch it or to manipulate it sometimes, but they're just breaking down the skin barrier and allowing any uh, organism to just penetrate deeper into the, the tissues. So they also need to keep their ear dry while we're treating. So we've talked about uh, presentation, and you've started to talk about pathophysiology when you're talking about chronic irritation or trauma. Uh, I first just wanted to start our pathophysiology section with discussing some of the normal flora that we find in the ear canal. Can you tell us a bit about what's normal for the ear? Really, any bacteria uh, that's on the skin can be uh, but mostly gram-positive, such as Staph aureus, Staph epidermidis. But there are people that are colonized with typically thought to be pathogenic bacteria. So there are asymptomatic people with Staph aureus, Pseudomonas. Uh, but I think they're being held in check by these healthier flora, um, and they're not clinically presenting with any symptoms. But you can also get 
uh, anaerobes, uh, diphtheroids, strep. So really just pretty much any, any bacteria is, is potentially possible. And I next wanted to kind of walk through acute, chronic, and malignant otitis externa and their particular pathophysiologies. Starting with acute, you said this is pain of greater than 48 hours, less than three weeks duration. What else should we know about the pathophysiology of acute otitis externa? What causes this? Um, It's almost always bacterial. I don't see a lot of it because it does respond very well to treatment, uh, so Pseudomonas is the primary bacteria that is at fault for the vast majority of patients. It can be fungal, so there are candida species, aspergillus species that can present as an acute uh, infection, but fungal infections tend to be more in the subacute or chronic category. And what's the sequence of events or the cycle that leads to this infection? Typically, first, there's a breakdown of the skin and wax rumen barrier. That can be from frequent swimming, Q-tip use. Once that happens, you see occlusion of the apopilosebaceous units, which then lead to swelling and edema. Uh, The skin starts to slough and collect in the ear canal. The pH uh, of the ear canal goes up. Typically, it's mildly acidic with the cerumen, and then... Bacteria and fungus tend to love that environment. So we've talked about acute. Can you now tell us a little bit more about chronic? How does that differ from acute, both clinically and pathophysiologically? Uh, First, I think that the pain is much less. It's predominantly itching, fullness, uh, debris, possibly odorrhea, hearing loss. Uh, The length of Symptoms is typically two to three months or greater, oftentimes years. It can affect both ears. I think that's another thing that is not seen in acute otitis externa, whereas chronic otitis externa tends to can very often be bilateral. And then I think there there's a shift in cause uh, from acute otitis externa to chronic otitis externa. There's still certainly a subset of chronic bacterial infection, but there, I think, personally, is a minority. And then you start to see a rise in fungal infections and chronic skin conditions. I call it atopic otitis externa, or some people call it chronic eczematous otitis externa. Uh, So you start to see that uh, type of thing much, much more commonly. And the next thing I wanted to ask you about is myringitis. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and where it fits on the spectrum of otitis externa? Myringitis is essentially a inflammation of the epithelial layer of the tympanic membrane. Um, the cause for it is really unknown. That's the problem. We don't know a lot about it. I think it's commonly thrown in by most uh, practitioners uh, as it's part of the infection, but truly I think it is separate and we're not sure why if some people develop meningitis when the vast majority of people with 
acute and chronic otitis externa do not develop meningitis. So it's a different process in my mind that needs to be noticed because it does make treatment more refractory. It just it's hard to get rid of chronic meningitis. And next, uh, I wanted to talk about malignant otitis externa, also known as necrotizing otitis externa, or as you said, skull-based osteomyelitis. Can you tell us about this disease process, how it progresses, and what it can mean for the patient? Again, typically, it's in an older patient uh, with some type of immunosuppression uh, or diabetes. Now, you shouldn't not think of it in a younger patient uh, that meets those criteria, but the typical person is your 60-year-old diabetic that has acute otitis externa for whatever reason. It seems to me in my practice that it's somebody was flushing their ear canal for wax, and they develop an acute otitis externa but are just unable to fight off the pseudomonas infection, which is what is the typical organism causing skull-based osteomyelitis. So it uh, goes through the same process, I think, as acute otitis externa, but then it gets into uh, the bone of the ear canal. Uh, people say that it passes through the uh, fissures of Santorini uh, into the soft tissue surrounding the ear canal. And you start to see two things that make me concerned about it is, one, the type of patient, and then specifically if they're complaining of pain that's just more than you normally see with an acute otitis externa. So one of the things that if you hear should be concerning is is it's pain that's severe enough to be waking somebody up from a sleep uh, or at night. That starts to concern me. And you have to judge the person's personality, but uh, if you have a fairly stoic person that's complaining of a lot of pain, uh, that those are some tip-offs. And secondly, it's not getting better with the standard therapies. You know, you should be better from otitis externa in a couple, you know, week or so. Uh, and so it tends to be that, oh, I've treated with Ciprodex for a long time uh, now, and it's just terrible pain and getting worse. And then on exam, I think the clincher is seeing granulation at the bony cartilaginous junction. And I've seen it just be occlusive. So it's like you don't just say, oh, it's all through the ear canal. That's not it. But typically, it's just some granulation tissue that you see at the bony cartilaginous junction, especially kind of anterior and inferior. If you see that, that's kind of very typical of otitis externa. I'm sorry, malignant otitis externa. And what do you have on your differential diagnosis? I know it can be long, but can you run us briefly through what all you're thinking when you see these patients? So having just kind of a list to run through uh, in your head is important. Some things are more common and acute or chronic, but just a list of things to think of would be fungal otitis externa, uh, atopic or eczematous uh, dermatitis of the external canal, uh, some of those patients can have asthma or eczema as, as tip-offs to that. Uh, other skin conditions, like we talked about, psoriasis and lichen planus. Uh, meningitis can coexist with otitis externa or be solely present as the cause of otorrhea. Otitis media, with a hole in the eardrum draining and causing a secondary otitis externa, uh, medial canal fibrosis typically uh, starts kind of in a meningitis picture 
and then uh, gets very exuberant, and then the medial canal fibrosis part of it is where the medial canal starts to fill up with scar tissue or uh, fibrotic tissue. Um, we've already talked about skull base osteomyelitis. I think important, very important, is uh, for somebody not getting better with your standard treatment uh, of otitis externa is skin malignancies. Uh, there's really two uh, that are common, basal cell and squamous cell. Basal cells tend to be more towards the opening or meatus, oftentimes involving some part of the pinna and growing in. Uh, but I've seen a few basal cells just of the external canal, where squamous cells can be anywhere. They can be on the pinna, uh, at the opening, but they can primarily start even in the deep ear canal. And so anybody that's not getting better, uh, you want to start to look for ulcerative or bleeding lesions, uh, which can be very difficult, but sometimes they need biopsied. can be an infected hair follicle or furuncle. Then there are some systemic uh, diseases such as vasculitis. The one that I keep in mind is uh, GPA, uh, which used to be called Wegener's granulomatosis. Contact dermatitis, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome uh, with VZB, radiation-induced osteoradionecrosis. Finally, we'll end up with the external canal cholesteatoma or keratosis obturans, which I think the difference between those two things are they're more chronic, so it's usually in the chronic otitis externa kind of differential. And you really have to see a lot of collection medially of skin in the canal they, um, and then start to see bone exposure. So I don't think of those things typically in the acute setting. And next I wanted to move on to workup. It seems that a lot of the workup is involved in the physical exam, uh, but can you tell us about the role of culture in these patients? Uh, there are a lot of different philosophies, um, and I don't know if one is absolutely right over the other. Um, specifically, if you are seeing a fresh, straightforward, acute otitis externa uh, patient that's from frequent swimming, I don't think a culture is necessary in that instance. Um, you can treat them for the typical bacteria with anti-pseudomonal topical therapy, and you need to follow them, they need to get better, and so I don't think it's necessary uh, in that person. But if you have somebody that uh, has an acute otitis externa that's not getting better, again, you want to start to think of other things, or is this skull-based osteomyelitis, do they fit that profile? Uh, but if somebody's been previously treated, I like to culture because it tends to change what's going to be found uh, and sometimes it's refractory to it's not pseudomonas it's uh, something that's relatively refractory to what's being used or sometimes I've seen where over treatment with Ciprodex has pushed the original bacterial infection to a fungal infection um, and sometimes fungal infections are very obvious but sometimes they're not and so I send it for uh, I culture treatment refractory otitis externa, and I culture it for fungus, uh, bacteria, 
and I'll even send it for mycobacteria because I've seen probably five to six cases of external canal mycobacteria infection in my career. Is there any role for lab workup or lab studies to be obtained in these patients? I think that if you're thinking of one of the rare systemic diseases, if you've somehow gotten to that part of your differential, you can. So sending off a MPO and PR3 for vasculitis, uh, those diagnose not only uh, GPA, but other types of vasculitis, you can start to do that. But routinely, I don't. Some people like to have a sed rate to follow more for treatment resolution in malignant otitis externa or skull base osteomyelitis, but I don't routinely get uh, systemic laboratories. And what about the role of imaging in these patients? Again, for straightforward acute otitis externa, without risk factors for immunocompromised, I don't think there's a role for imaging. I also don't think there's a role for somebody that has a fairly straightforward story and exam for chronic otitis externa, especially if there's not a lot of pain involved. Um, I think the role of imaging starts to come in when you're worried about uh, either an alternative source of otorrhea. So maybe you have a perforation present and there's a lot of swelling and you can't really tell where the otorrhea is coming from. Is it middle ear? Is it external ear? So there can be some role uh, if you're thinking this may be more of a middle ear process. Uh, But I think primarily it's for skull-based osteomyelitis. So you're Uh, If you have a patient that you think that has that imaging, I think is warranted. And can you tell us about the role of technetium and gallium scans in the diagnosis or tracking of skull-based osteomyelitis? Due to being unfamiliar with kind of that niche area of radiology, they're not utilized very often. Uh, They're hard to order, trying to understand all of the different radioisotopes that they use uh, makes that part difficult. So I frequently see CT and MRI scan, which are very valid imaging for uh, malignant otitis externa. I would say that you have to be careful. CT uh, doesn't always look abnormal right away. MRI scans um, show really only the soft tissue component, so you're missing, uh, it's more of an adjunct it shows soft tissue involvement of, say, the parotid or upper neck. Uh, radionuclide scans, uh, I think, do play a role, especially if your CT scan is not showing a lot of bony changes and you're very suspicious for skull-based osteomyelitis. So you could do a technetium scan, which is very sensitive for uh, active bone infection, but it's not very specific. Um, it can get be positive in malignancies or other things. And it also is not very good at tracking disease resolution. It will remain positive for uh, a very long time, possibly even uh, permanently. And that's the same problem we see with CT scans is you can't really, once there starts to be bone erosion, you can't follow it for resolution uh, because that never really normalizes. Gallium scans... Uh, are thought to 
become positive with active infection and then go negative once the infection is resolved. I think this is where I see a lot of different types of radioisotopes used by various radiologists. So in working in concert with them, I think, is very important. They could be using some type of indium study or tag white blood cell. But the idea is that uh, something that shows active infection and then resolves when when, when that uh, infection is gone, um, that typically is thought to be the gallium scan. And what is the role for biopsy in these patients? Do you find yourself biopsying these patients very often? If I see granulation tissue in the ear canal, that gets biopsied. So yes, I think it's important to rule out a malignancy. Uh, malignancies can be very painful. They can have cranial nerve changes. So they really mimic each other. And I think you need, if you see granulation tissue, uh, you should biopsy it. And my final question before we move on to treatment is, how do you distinguish uh, otitis externa from something that's a more systemic disease? How do you distinguish it from something like osteoradionecrosis? Osteoradionecrosis, I'll start with that, is based on the history. They've received a significant radiation dose to the area, Um, typically The classic example is a parotid malignancy uh, that's received radiation. And then there can be pain with osteoradionecrosis that can be quite severe. You have debris. You can have swelling. But I I think the key difference is the history of the radiation to the area. And then on exam, you start to see bone exposure. And oftentimes, it can be very speculated. And there's breakdown of not only the skin, but the bone in the ear canal starts to break down, and you see almost spitting pieces of bone into the debris. And in terms of systemic disease, I think you don't think of those things uh, right off the bat. It's in your differential, but if you're starting to run into treatment refractory disease, you can start to look at systemic vasculitis or systemic skin conditions that could be at play causing problems in the ear canal. Next, moving on to treatment. I think this is going to be a really important aspect of this episode. Um, Can you tell us how you think about your treatment options um, and maybe take us in a stepwise fashion of how you treat these folks for AOE and COE? I'll start with AOE. When you're examining the ear, you have to judge whether or not there's enough room for topical treatment to get down in the ear canal. There's also a lot of resistance, rightfully so, due due to pain of letting you debride a lot. So if there is over 50% narrowing as a rough guideline or uh, you're unable to remove a lot of debris, um, air towards placing a wick so that the therapy will get down in the ear canal. A wick shouldn't stay in place longer than 7 to 10 days. Um, I find, though, that frequently with therapy, you'll get a call that the wick fell out, and that's not always a bad thing. That means the edema might be resolving. But a wick or no wick, and so then if you're talking about therapies, I like for acutitis externa ciprodex because it has a powerful topical steroid in it mixed with an anti-pseudomonal, um, and whether that's Cipro-HC, but that's 
what I like to use. Uh, the other reason is that it's middle ear safe and you can't always tell if there's a perforation. There's no odor toxicity. So that's usually my first line therapy. But sometimes you run into allergies or cost considerations. And so you can do uh, acidification therapies, which would include acetic acid or vinegar, white vinegar. These can be homemade or they can be prescription uh, where they mix the acetic acid with the hydrocortisone. Boric acid and alcohol uh, can be used. Uh, I find that's more helpful in canal wall down ears, and it's difficult to obtain because not a lot of pharmacies have knowledge of it and how to uh, compound it. But boric acid and alcohol uh, can be used. Uh, but you want to make sure that anything that you're mixing with alcohol, uh, that you know that the tympanic membrane is intact, not only for comfort, but alcohol is, uh, uh, is pretty ototoxic. So that's a treatment for AOE. Can you now walk us through how you think about the treatment for chronic otitis externa? Again, um, you have some of the same options you do for acute otitis externa. There is a small subset of patients that it's chronic bacterial. I would think that they're more in the group of patients that maybe aren't being compliant with Q-tips and are making it treatment refractory. These are the patients that I start to culture because they've been multiply treated. So uh, you're going to Uh, hopefully have some help on uh, should I continue antibiotic or more likely I see a great rise in fungal uh, infections. So there are a lot of topical antifungals, um, primarily are three that I I think of. I use clotrimazole, 1% solution or lotrimin for any candida species. I also use it If I see in the office a patient that has fungal spores and they can't afford a more directed therapy like voriconazole, uh, 1% ophthalmic solution. But typically if I have an exam or culture somebody that grows out aspergillus, which is super common, clotrimazole and lotrimin don't work very well. Uh, So I... Uh, like to use voriconazole 1% uh, in those uh, people. Occasionally you'll find some mucor uh, species or uh, other dermatophyted type funguses that require amphotericin 0.15% ophthalmic. Again, I think your culture is very helpful. There are the Uh, acidification and antiseptics that you can use on chronic. We've talked about the acetic acid and the boric acid and alcohol or water. I like a lot of betadine. You can use 10%, I think, is kind of the most common or half strength. I've had patients use full strength uh, without problems, but betadine can be helpful for bacteria or fungus. Um, And then I like to use genian violet, which is an old topical therapy that's good for bacteria and funguses. What about the application of topical steroids in these patients or immunomodulators? Is there a role for that? Certainly, again, in the chronic otitis externa spectrum, if your differential has led you to uh, has led you to atopic dermatitis uh, or eczematous uh, otitis externa or uh, 
a skin condition like lichen planus or psoriasis of the ear canal, you can certainly use uh, topical steroid or immunomodulators uh, in the ear canal. Um, I think when you're looking at purely using these, these are uh, somewhat immunosuppressive, and I like to have a culture showing that either normal flora is present or at least not having uh, a specific known pathogen that's common like Pseudomonas or Staph aureus before I start to use these. But some of the things that I find helpful, I usually start with fluencinolone solution 0.01%, which can be used BID. You can increase the uh, potency and, uh, and use something like clobetazole. Uh, 0.05% solution. Um, you have to be very careful with this. It is very potent, and prolonged chronic use can lead to bone exposure or osteonecrosis. Uh, so you probably want to limit that to a couple of weeks. Lastly, uh, I find tacrolimus is uh, very helpful. Uh, it can be used alone or in mixture with fluencinolone twice a day. And again, uh, I like to limit this to no more than three to four weeks uh, of use before you check up on them. Uh, the reason is that tacrolimus has been found to potentially uh, be uh, a risk factor for developing um, skin carcinomas uh, with chronic prolonged use. So you do have to monitor them if you're using this long term. I know that ototoxicity is one of the main considerations in treatment. Can you tell us which of these medications you think about most often or more frequently in terms of being ototoxic? I think it's a great question, and I would make it easier to remember by flipping it on its head. What is approved for the middle ear and is not ototoxic? And the list is short. It's Ciprodex and CiproHC, so any of the and floxin. Yeah, so any of the fluoroquinolone drops are the only ones that are approved. Everything else on the list, whether it be acetic acid, definitely alcohol, uh, boric acid, amphotericin, voriconazole, lotrimin, uh, gentian violet, go down the list, um, are not approved for the middle ear, potentially have ototoxicity. There's a few that I have some clinical insight into that may not be. I think that clotrimazole slash lotrimin or voriconazole I've clinically used with an open middle ear without significant problems, but I think you do take a small risk because they're not cleared for the middle ear. I've used 10% betadine uh, quite frequently with an open middle ear. There are animal studies that go both ways, uh, whether yes it is or no it's not ototoxic. But in the clinical realm, um, there have been studies saying that betadine does not cause any uh, apparent ototoxicity. So I, I think that that potentially could be okay. Uh, the steroid solutions when you're getting into the chronic eczema, eczema of the ear canals, uh, the straight steroids uh, are safe, but when you're mixing them with things like tacrolimus or, or other medications, the, those medicines are not approved for the middle ear. So we really have a, need, a great need for more 
uh, non-ototoxic topical therapies. And what's the role of powders, um, I think especially as it pertains to caring for a mastoid cavity? The creams and powders uh, are used by uh, some physicians, and I'm not against them. I think the reason I don't use them primarily for patients uh, just for standard ear canals and otitis externa, chronic otitis externa, is it's an access problem. Uh, You can't very easily uh, get cream down in an ear canal at home or powder down in an ear canal at home. And so um, if you have a very compliant patient that's easily instructed, uh, those can be used. But I, I don't have a lot of success with that. Whereas a mastoid cavity with a meatoplasty that's wide, uh, you, I really do like powders uh, and rinses. Um, so I primarily use two powders uh, in mastoid cavities. Uh, PBH powder, which is a mixture of polymix and B, boric acid and hydrocortisone, or CSF uh, H powder, which is a mixture of chloramphenicol, sulfonilamide, uh, amphotericin B, uh, plus or minus hydrocortisone, um, and these can be used once or twice a day. Um, one of the things I see with powders, however, is uh, that over time, used chronically, just left on autopilot. Some patients do great with that. Other patients will build up these huge medical concretions of dried powder. So in those patients, you, you got to probably be a little bit more limited in your use or to clean that stuff out uh, periodically. And then I also like uh, a topical therapy for patients that have uh, just this unknown granulation tissue or mucosalization in the, in the mastoid cavity. I like using acetylcysteine with Cipridex. Uh, the theory behind how that works is that a lot of the bacteria, uh, such as Pseudomonas, produce biofilms, uh, and the reason that they're uh, not clearing with just Cipridex alone is is it's not getting penetration through that. So the acetylcysteine has been shown in uh, um, laboratory studies to break down biofilm, and then the Cipridex can then be more effective. So I've had some people uh, use that with remarkable drying results of their mastoid cavity. Um, and what's the role for IV or oral antibiotics, and when do you involve infectious disease colleagues? Standard acute otitis media and chronic otitis externa do not, there is not a role uh, for uh, oral or IV antibiotics. To me, it really is used for the patient that I think has developing or advanced skull-based osteomyelitis. Um, And then I think if you think you have that, I I use IV antibiotics and my ID colleagues. I I see a lot of people that are initially treated with oral fluoroquinolones when they're a patient has skull-based osteomyelitis, and I think that is under treatment and it's not, not correct. So I, I do think that once you have your diagnosis and you're treating, you treat with IV antibiotics. I like to have patients treated with two anti-pseudomonal IV antibiotics for a minimum of six weeks, but typically until there's clinical symptom resolution or scan resolution, however you're following it. So it may need to be a much longer And I think where the role of oral therapy comes in with skull-based osteomyelitis is 
there are a not insignificant number of patients that you treat to, for skull-based osteomyelitis to clinical resolution or scan resolution that then quickly rebound with a second case. And they may need to be on prophylactic suppression with Cipro, Floxacin orally. Uh, so that's where I see the oral therapy coming in, into play or being useful. And finally, what's the role for surgery in these patients, more specifically with chronic otitis externa? Chronic otitis externa is typically a medical disease. And so where I see the mistake is it's sent in as a primary surgical disease. And it's, it's not. It's a medical disease that actually has a lot of hard work with cleaning and debriding uh, that's necessary for uh, and a lot of trial and error trying to find out something that's effective. I think there are a small number of areas that can be considered for surgery. Um, Chronic otitis externa that causes a severe stenosis that's led to uh, a conductive hearing loss and or trapping of debris medial to the stenosis. You can consider canalplasty with split thickness skin graft, but I think that those types of surgeries do have a significant failure rate uh, over time due to the fact that we don't have control of the primary underlying disease, skin disease. Uh, So I'm very conservative with that. Secondly, um, meningitis uh, is often refractory to anything that you throw at, topical steroids, uh, Ciprodex, etc., And I offer laser moringoplasty where you essentially uh, use a defocused laser of choice and get rid of all of the granulations and the epithelial layer of the drum, trying to preserve the middle fibrous layer and the underlayer. And then you hope that a healthy squamous outer layer will regrow in place. Uh, And... I've had about a 50% success rate with that, um, but it's not surprising when that doesn't work. And then there can be surgeries used for patients that have medial canal fibrosis. Um, I think you have to be careful about what has caused that and what stage of the disease that they're in. So uh, typically there's a transition from a wet meningitis, acute inflamed red stage to a more fibrotic stage operating in the uh, more inflamed stage, I think, is doomed to failure. So it really needs to be medial canal fibrosis in the dry fibrotic plug stage of the uh, disease, which is usually a couple years in. Uh, You can consider canalplasty, split the skin graft, and a lot of times you have to do a lateral graft and panoplasty with that uh, to reset the drum back down to the annulus Again, uh, I think there's a high failure rate. I don't push those surgeries too much. I think a lot of times those patients can do quite well with the hearing aids or Bajas and, or things like that. So. And finally, can you tell us about the outcomes and prognosis for these uh, conditions, maybe starting with acute otitis externa? Acute otitis externa, I think, has an excellent prognosis. I don't think we see too much of it in ENT because it, respond so well to therapy. I think a lot of primary care, pediatrics, emergency room physicians take care of 
90 plus percent of it. So uh, we don't even see it. And then I think we do see some that's more treatment refractory, and most of those I can get better too. So I think it's excellent. Uh, as you go to subacute and then a chronic, I think that the prognosis of getting back to normal and uh, carefree, never have to think about my ear again, uh, uh, becomes much lower. Um, these tend to be refractory, that even if I have a fungal otitis externa, for example, that I get them over the uh, uh, acute exacerbation of, of it, that they tend to come back, and I see these patients long term uh, with relapsing and remitting fungal infections. Um, the atopic eczematous otitis externa, I think, has the worst prognosis of them all because uh, we don't have a dermatologic cure for eczema. Uh, and so these patients are controlled uh, but never really cured. Uh, so the steroids and the tacrolimus, uh, et cetera, do help quite a bit uh, in the cleaning and everything else you've thrown at it, but they typically never really have a period of resolution, uh, and it's a chronic disease. Well, Dr. Neff, I think we've had a thorough discussion about otitis externa. Anything else you'd like to add before I move on to the summary? I can't think of anything specifically other than to say that otitis externa, acute chronic or malignant is a lot of hard work. Uh, I, th I think you have to really debride and stay on top of them in multiple follow-ups, and that's why it's not a very popular disease among otolaryngologists. But I think if you do do the hard work and put that in with the patient, they, they tend to really appreciate it and get and some of them do get better. So, Awesome. Thank you so much. So to move into our summary... External ear infection can include a myriad of pathologies, including acute otitis externa, chronic otitis externa, and malignant otitis externa. Acute is often bacterial in nature and has a rapid onset and lasts for less than a few weeks. Chronic otitis externa lasts longer than three months and is more likely to be fungal in nature. Malignant otitis externa, or skull-based osteomyelitis, is a progressive infection that travels from the external auditory canal through the foramina of the external auditory canal and into the skull base. Clinical exam includes a thorough exam of the canals and debridement for a full appreciation of the clinical pathology. And workup can include culture if the ear is draining or refractory to treatment. Imaging can be indicated when there's possibility of osteomyelitis, and biopsy is warranted when there's evidence of a mass or granulation tissue. In terms of Infection, there are a myriad of treatment options, including antibiotics, antiseptics, acidification, antifungals, topical steroids, and other powders. There are also roles for oral and IV treatment when osteomyelitis is in play, as Dr. Neff described. Operative intervention is pretty limited here, but can include canalplasty or laser ablation if there's a myringitis. And outcomes for Acute otitis externa are excellent, while outcomes for chronic otitis externa are less encouraging, with this often being an issue that needs to be addressed uh, for an extended period of time. Dr. Neff, anything you'd like to add? No, I think that's it in a nutshell. Great. Well, now we'll move on to the question-asking portion of our time together. Uh, as a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give you the answer. So the first question is, what are some common complaints or symptoms of chronic otitis externa? 
So common complaints or symptoms of chronic otitis externa are otorrhea, oral fullness, puritis, and varying occlusion of the external auditory canal with possible hearing loss. And as Dr. Neff described, pain is not usually as common in the chronic process as it is in the acute process. For our next question, what is the pathophysiology of otitis externa? Otitis externa is usually caused by a breakdown of the skin cerumen barrier, so this can be caused by trauma with things such as Q-tips or bobby pins or other predisposing factors like chronic water exposure, heat, humidity, or the absence of cerumen. This leads to swelling and edema as well as breakdown in skin migration and the change in pH. This uh, leads to a cycle of subsequent occlusion of dermal subunits and inflammatory reaction with bacterial or fungal overgrowth and progressive edema. For our next question, what's the pathognomonic sign of malignant otitis externa? The sign that's most consistent with skull-based osteomyelitis or malignant otitis externa is granulation tissue at the inferior aspect of the ear canal, specifically at the bony cartilaginous junction, though as Dr. Neff said, uh, there can be granulation tissue all throughout the external auditory canal in these instances. And for our final question, what is the standard treatment for otitis externa? So the standard treatment of otitis externa, both acute and chronic would be debridement to get a better understanding to clear out any skin tissue, and then placement of a wick if there's been stenosis of greater than 50%. And then it requires selection of appropriate ototopicals with consideration of what may or may not be applicable in these scenarios. This includes antibiotics such as Cipridex, acidification such as acetic acid, antifungals, antiseptics such as betadine and gentian violet and other topical steroids. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.